chapters in all the Old Testament to understand. So anyway, so we're going to look at that this morning, and that's, that's my whole introduction, so thank you. Second um, Samuel chapter 7, starting in verses 1 through 3. Let's have a reader this morning. Jana. So David desires to build a temple for God. And David here starts out by saying, and he's talking to Nathan the prophet, he says that he's dwelling in a house. So David is dwelling in his house, and we think that this is probably maybe in the last ten years of his reign here. And the reason we think this is because... Uh, Historically, Hiram did not become king of Tyre until around 980 B.C. Hiram was the guy who helped David by providing materials for his palace. Um, David's reign was from around 1010 to 970 B.C., so that's why we're thinking it's maybe in that time frame. Um, it's just a possibility. We don't really have a great idea of exactly when this happened, but that's a guess here. So David was going in his house, and he's looking around. He sees... I got this great palace, and maybe he looks in Jerusalem. At this point, Jerusalem's not a huge city. It's not terribly built up. And he looks around and sees the tabernacle, perhaps, and says, well, this isn't right. I have this beautiful, permanent palace, and the Ark of God is sitting there in a tent. That's not right. I need to do something about that. You know, and, and David's mindset is, I'm not more important than God. I shouldn't have a permanent home, and God's Ark could be in a, a tent. I should make a permanent place for God's ark to be where we can worship and it can be permanently there. A great idea, right? So um, he looks around and his, his, um, at this point in time, God has given him rest and the idea is from his enemies. So he's defeated his enemies. The Philistines are no longer being a bother. Remember all the time before Saul and even through the reign of Saul and at the beginning of David's reign, the Philistines are just the enemies of Israel. They're, they're constantly bothering Israel. They're constantly attacking, causing problems. Even David had these two great battles with the Philistines we talked about a couple chapters ago. And finally, they seem to be so utterly defeated, they're not giving Israel any trouble anymore. And then, then even, it says, rest all around. So all these other nations around Israel are finally come to the fact of, we can't defeat Israel, we're not going to fight them anymore. And David finally has rest from his enemies. He doesn't have to fight any wars anymore. He's, he's, he's at the point where he's not going out to battle every day. And he can look around and say, what can I do now as king to benefit my nation, to, to benefit my people? You know, what, what's, my, what's my infrastructure build here that I can do to help my people out? What can I do internally? And the first thing he sees is, okay, Maybe I can build a temple. That would be a good thing. We have a permanent place of worship for God. I think we should do that. So he approaches Nathan. And Nathan seems to be kind of, uh, remember Gad was for a while a prophet to David. Gad would kind of follow David around to be his prophet. Nathan seems to have taken Gad's place. I don't know if this means Gad has died or if Gad's off doing something else, but Nathan will start appearing in the story more regularly here. Um, But Nathan seems to be a prophet to the king. Seems to be... God's spokesman to David. So he approaches Nathan the prophet, and he says, I have a house, but the ark dwells in tents. And the implication is here, that shouldn't be happening. I want to do something about it. And so Nathan responds, great idea, David. Do it. Do what's in your heart. Build a temple, and God is with you. Right? I mean, this is a good thing. If, If I were to come to you and say, Look, end of the year, our company did great. My boss gave me a $1,000 bonus. I want to give that money to the church to you know, maybe use on a project for the building, or maybe we should uh, give it to missionaries. What do you guys think? And, and without hesitation, I think most of you would say, you know, Sean, that's a great idea. God's giving you that money uh, through your work. Go ahead and do it. That sounds good. You're using it for the glory of God. Go and do it, right? No, I mean, this is a great idea. This makes logical sense. You know, he's doing this for God. No problem. Go and do it. Nathan doesn't even have to think about this, right? This, this obviously is what God would want David to do. 
So Nathan gives him the thumbs up and says, go do it. Good, good, good thought, good idea, good job. You're thinking the right way. God's obviously for you here. Let's read on. Verses 4 through 7. Miriam. So God corrects Nathan's approval. So in my paraphrase, Nathan says, yep, go do it, David. And God says, oh, wait, hold on a second. Maybe you should talk to me first. Yeah. So that night, God spoke to Nathan. And he says, go to David. Tell him my message. This is, this is what I want you to tell him. And the first thing he does is he asks a question. Would David build a house for God? Now, what's, what's the answer that God's implying here? Would David build a house for God? The, the applied answer is no. And he's going to give reasons why. Now, um, there's a reason that's left out of this passage that we see in First Chronicles. Um, so I would like somebody to read those for us because I don't want to be talking the whole time. Who would like to read? Judy, go ahead. You can read both those passages there. And later on, this is uh, David both times talking to Solomon and saying, look, I wanted to build a house for God. And he's, he's telling Solomon that this is going to be your job. You're the one who's going to build the temple. But he gives a reason that God gave him that we don't see in this passage. And that reason is because he's been a man of war and he's shed much blood. Now, I, this is something I actually thought of this morning. Um, and I was thinking... You know, it's interesting, because what kind of man up to this point is David that we've seen from our study of David? What kind of man is he? What, how would you characterize David? A protector of Israel. He's a protector of Israel. Good. What else? Man after God's own heart. He's a man after God's own heart. What else? Soldier, mostly. Soldier. Okay. What else? What kind, what, what's, what's his character? What kind of character does David have? How would, you, how would you characterize his life? He was a man of faith. Good. What else? He was obedient. obedient. Good. Yeah. Even when he had the opportunity to kill Saul, he didn't because he was going to obey God and trust in God. He was obedient. Good. What else? Yeah, he, he, other than this story here where he didn't ask God about building the temple, he's, he's asked God. I mean, we saw when he attacked the Philistines, he went to God and said, God, do you want me to attack the Philistines? They're, they're coming to attack Israel, God. Do you want me to fight them? Well, most generals, most commanders, most protectors of Israel would be like, okay, the bad guys are coming. We've got to fight them. David goes to God first and says, God, do you want me to fight them? How do you want me to fight them? Are we going to win? God, what do you want me to do here? Yeah, he, he, he seeks God's, God's, uh, God's uh, direction and what he's going to do. Yeah, he, he did. The, the prophet kind of led him astray a little bit, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and maybe it's the Nathan's failure here more than David. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, he went to Nathan thinking, okay, I'm going to the prophet. Tell me, does God want me to do this? And Nathan's like, yes. So maybe Nathan failed more than David here. That's a good point. Um, so, so you look at all these things, and would you say that, Dave, or that David is a godly individual, a man who is doing what God wants him to do. I mean, no, he's not perfect, okay? We understand that David's not a perfect person, but he's a godly individual. He's doing what God wants him to do. He's faithfully serving God. Would you call David a servant of God? Would you agree with me that? But what would you say about his ability to build a temple for God? And the word I was thinking of this morning is that Oh, now my pen's not going to work. Come on. He's disqualified. And God says, he, you can't do it because you're a man of war and you shed much blood. And so I'm not going to let you build the temple for me. And it made me think, you know what? That doesn't change that David was a godly man, that he was doing what God wanted him to do, and everything that God wanted to do, even... Being a man of war and shedding much blood, isn't that what God wanted him to do? Didn't God pull him out of the sheepfold to lead his people, and to defend his people, and to lead them into war, to protect them from the Philistines? Isn't that what God called them to do? So it made me think, and, and follow me. So this is kind of a side point, and I just was thinking through this this morning. Um, let's say someone wants to be a pastor. That's a good calling, right, if someone wants to be a pastor, but there might be some things that might disqualify them from being a pastor, right? If they're disqualified, does that make them an ungodly person or a bad individual or less important or less faithful to God because they're disqualified from that? Absolutely not. Was David doing what God wanted him to do? Yes. Always disqualified from building a temple? Yes. For instance, Abigail might come up and say, I want to be a pastor. But what's the problem with that? That could be a problem. But what's the real biblical problem? What's what's the what's a big biblical problem with Abigail being a pastor? You you are a woman, and if I understand the scripture right, being a, a one woman man, a, a husband of one wife would be a very big problem for you being a woman, right? That that pretty much disqualifies you. Does that mean that Abigail is less important, less godly, less faithful to God, less doing that, not doing what God wants her to do because of that? Yes. No. And I picked out an obvious one because I'm, I'm trying to point out that you might not be able to do everything. You might not be able to do the glamorous top roles that people think of as, oh, look, look at that godly person doing that role. I'm not... I'm not a college professor at Faith Baptist Bible College because I'm not qualified to do that. That doesn't mean you're not doing what God wants you to do. That doesn't mean you're not faithful to God. That doesn't mean you're not totally in God's will and God's plan of where he wants you to be. This is not a bad word necessarily. Now, there might be some things that might disqualify you that, that make you bad if you're a drunken brawler. That's why you're not a pastor. Okay, you better change that. That's, you know, for instance, that's, that's something... You shouldn't be. Yeah. So um, anyway, so did you see? Do you see kind of the point I'm getting at here? David was doing what he was supposed to do, but God wasn't going to let him build the temple because he wasn't the right person for that job. So that's just kind of my thought. And if if you have a problem with that, you can talk to me afterwards. Okay. <laughs> um, so so God's reason. There's there's a reason God gives there. Going on here, um, God goes on to say. God hasn't dwelt in a permanent house this whole time. And he brings up from the time of the Exodus until now, I haven't dwelt in a house. It's not like this is all of a sudden a new problem. It's not like God was in a temple yesterday and the temple burned down and now you've got to do something about it, David. This has been 400-some years now that I haven't dwelt in a house. I've been in the tabernacle this whole time. It's not like there's all of a sudden this immediate issue you've got to fix. 
His presence has been in a tent and in the tabernacle. The ark has been there. And notice, uh, David talks about the ark, and, and, and I notice this, that in verse 2 he says, the ark of God dwells inside a tent curtain. But God answers and says, I have not dwelt in a house. God changes that. And I think it might be because of the, you know, the day of atonement and God's presence was coming down there for the day of atonement. So I think you know, God's making it a little bit personal here. Um, What's that? They They did, but now it's in Jerusalem. And previous to this, it was in the the house of, uh, uh, which guy was it? It wasn't Obed-Eden. That was the the three months, but the guy before that. I can't remember the guy's name. That was there 20 years, and before that, you know, um, it, it was still, it didn't move around a lot since they got to Israel. But now it's in Jerusalem. David's trying to make it a permanent place of worship for them. Um, and so God goes on to ask another question, um, but he says he's not asked. Yeah, he's not asked for a permanent place. He says, "Why have?" Uh, he says, "I have not commanded anybody, my anybody of my people Israel, anybody who shepherded my people Israel. Why have you not built me a house of cedar? I haven't asked that of anybody. All this time, these four hundred years, I've never told one leader, one of the people who have asked to shepherd my people to build me a house. I've never asked anybody to do this." I've never come down and said, why haven't you done this yet? So, so God, God's making the point that that's, that's never been commanded. Okay. So let's go on. God's going to turn this around a little bit now. Verses 8 through the first part of verse 11. Lemuel, go ahead. So God recounts his blessing and future blessings to David. So he starts out by arguing, you know, I've, I've never dwelt in a house, and I've never asked anybody um, to make a house for me. But then he starts talking about David, which is very interesting. And he starts telling David, this is what I've done for you. And I think of the... God's point is maybe that you're trying to do something for me, but that's not the point of all this. Look at what I've done for you. I'm the one who's put you in this position. I'm the one who's put you in this place where you've rested now. I'm the one who's given you rest from all your enemies. I'm the one who's exalted you and made you king over all of Israel. If I want a house for myself, I can certainly do that myself. I don't need you to do that. I'm the one who, who... who's been able to do this for you. And so he, he's recounting this, and, and he talks about he, he exalted David from a shepherd. And, and remember, um, you know, maybe we don't think of shepherds correctly. Shepherds were not, this, this was not the top job in the world. This was one of the bottom jobs in the world at that time. This was not the glorious job. This was the bad job. This was the dirty jobs. This was the one you didn't want. And that's what, what David was doing. He was the son number eight, and when, remember when Samuel came and was going to find the next king, you know, the seven sons came, and number eight had to stay out with the sheep because he was the unimportant one, and, you know, somebody had to take care of the sheep, so let's send son number eight out there and leave him out with the sheep while the other seven come to the, the feast and meet the prophet. You know, so he, he was the low of the low. And God says, that's where you were at. I took you from being the shepherd, and now you're the king over all of Israel. You're the one ruling over all of Israel. And it wasn't what you did, David. It's God who did that. And God's saying, I did that for you. And he tells him, I've been with you. 
How did David survive those 20 plus years running from Saul? It's because God had been with him. How did David go from, you know, being the ruler of one tribe to suddenly now he's ruling all of Israel? It's because God had been with him. God had been with David. God had cut off all David's enemies. You know, even the battles, the last battle, we remember, you know, David's second battle with those Philistines. What am I to do, God? Should I go up against the Philistines? God said, no. You go around behind them, and when you hear the noise of the marching armies in the trees, you go in because I'm going to go in before you, and I'm going to take care of them, and then you come in behind me. You know, God did that a number of times for David, where he fought that battle for him, and God's the one who has given David rest from all his enemies, and he's exalted David. He's given David a great name, and it talks about, like, the great men on earth, and certainly when you think of Old Testament people, who are the, the great people of the Old Testament? I mean... There's, there's a small list of people you think of. You think of Abraham, you think of Moses, and you probably think of David. Those are probably top three on the list, right? Maybe Joshua. But even Joshua pales to, to, to Moses for sure. I, I mean, I, I think if you ask an Israelite, those are probably their big three. Abraham, Moses, and David are probably their big three. And, and David, even in this time frame, he's, he's becoming one of the well-known kings here, the, the, the top kings, and, and he's well-known on earth, and God has done that for him. He also goes on um, to talk about he's going to bless Israel through David. He talks about he's going to give them a place. Um, he's going to plant them in their own place that they will no longer have to move, and he's going to remove oppression from them. And I think this is uh, a little bit future, like, um, you know, in David's time, there, there's some of this that goes on, but this is, this is hinting at a future kingdom that God's going to give them. And then God's time frame, he talks about this, this has not happened since the time the judges ruled over them, which is basically at the end of Joshua's time frame, that it was all judges. Until now, God had not given them rest. They were constantly fighting. They were constantly trying to conquer the land. They were facing enemies. And this is the first time God has given them any sense of rest from their enemies. And now God's done this in David's time, that, that he's, he's not facing wars every day. He's not facing enemies around him. And God has given him that, and God has blessed David greatly. It's not because of what David's done. It's not because of his military strategy. It's not because of his his great leadership as a king. It's because of God's blessing to him, because God has chosen him and put him in that place, and, and what God has done. And God's telling David this, this is what I've done for you. I've done this. Now the big one, verses 11 through 16. God's going to make a promise. They can go ahead. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And so God promises David, I do this a lot, an everlasting house. Oh, you started out so well, Penn. Come on. Lord tells you he will make you a house. Now, David has a house, right? He built himself a house. This is different. This is a house. This is a dynasty. This is a kingdom. This is descendants. David's house. And God only David a house. And, and look at this. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, he's saying when you're dead, <laughs> I'm going to set up your seed after you. And I, I, I think he's talking at this point very specifically about Solomon. Because look at what he says from this. Um, he will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And look at what he will do. He will build a house for my name. What does Solomon do? 
he, he's the one who builds the temple, right? So he's going to build the house for David. So he's, he's talking right now specifically of Solomon. Uh, so the nature of his kingdom, he will build the house for God. But in this, and I will establish it, the throne of his kingdom forever. So Solomon's line is going to continue to reign forever. Now, let me ask you the question. Which of Solomon's descendants is reigning in Israel right now? None. So, the question is, is this promise not fulfilled, or, or what's the deal with it? Yeah, so it doesn't mean that constantly, continually, there will be a king on the throne of David. It means that, as we look in the future, that there's going to be a king who's going to rule into the eternal state forever, right? Who's going to be from the line of David. And there's going to be this future king that is going to be reigning forever. And somebody mentioned Jesus, and so you're, you know, you're, you're spoiling the whole story here. But <laughs> yeah, you read ahead. We're in Samuel, you're not supposed to read ahead. So God makes this promise that, that the offspring of Solomon. Now, so for Solomon, as, as, did you read ahead, Lynn? Who's, who's the descendant of Solomon that, that, that comes from this line? Because it's not, it's not physically Jesus. The son of Solomon is Joseph. So Jesus' legal ability to reign comes from Joseph as his legal father. Um, David has a son named Nathan, which is funny because his prophet's also named Nathan. Nathan's not, this Nathan in this story is not David's son, Nathan. This is a different Nathan. There's more than one Nathan. Nathan, by the way, means what? Does anybody know what Nathan means other than Nathan? You don't, I don't know if you know. That doesn't mean nothing. <laughs> Do you know what Nathan means, Nathan? Do you know what Nathan means? No, it's actually a different meaning. Nathan means Nathan means gift. Nathaniel means gift of God, but Nathan just means gift. So you're a gift. I don't know if you're awesome or not, but anyway, but anyway, so so Nathan has, David has a son named Nathan, and from Nathan comes Mary. So uh, Jesus is comes from both sides. His his human descent comes from his son Nathan. His legal descendant comes from Solomon. So if you look at the genealogies, you'll see that. Um, anyway, going on, I'm getting way off track here. Um, this king will have a relationship with God. It will be this father-son relationship with God. And um, you see that in the beginning of the story of Solomon. Solomon goes and prays to God, and God says, you know, whatever you ask for, I will give to you. That's, that's kind of a father-son relationship, right? My kids come to me and ask for stuff. I'm going to try to provide it for them as long as it's not bad for them. You know, Dad, can I have a million pounds of candy? No, that's, that's not a good request. Dad, can I have some tools so I can do some work around the house? Yes, yes, you can use my tools. That's, please, please do that. That's a good request. In fact, not only can you have my tools, you can have some money to buy materials to work on stuff around the house. Yes, you know, it's like, God, you can have all that. I will give you more. Um, and it says, God will chase him for his iniquity. You know, a lot of times I read through this, and I, I, I struggled because I was trying to apply a lot of this to the Messiah. And you get to this verse, and it says, I will chasten him for... For when he commits iniquity, and you go, well, that can't apply to Jesus, right? Because Jesus didn't commit any iniquity. And so you try to spiritualize and say, well, maybe this means when Jesus took our sins upon him, he gets chastened. And no, I, th- this is applying to Solomon here. That's why when he commits iniquity, he will be chastened. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, meaning that God's not going to steal the kingdom, this promise, away from the house of David, that the promise is going to stay with him. He's not going to take it away from Saul. Remember, God said if Saul obeys He's going to establish Saul's kingdom forever. And we talked about that in class, that I don't know how it would have worked that the Messiah was going to come from Judah and he was going to rule. And then if Saul would have obeyed, Saul would have had an everlasting kingdom. There would have been two kingdoms, two kings. I don't know how that would have worked. God would have made it work because his promise would have been true. Saul didn't do it, but it would have worked somehow. But here, Saul's kingdom was removed. It was torn away and given to David. Um, and he was removed from the throne. But David's kingdom is going to be everlasting. David's house and kingdom will be established, and David's throne is going to last forever. 
And that's the promise God gave him. And again, we'll talk more in depth about what this all means in two weeks. Extra week for me to study. We will get greatness. It'll be the word of God, so it'll be great in one sense of it. My delivery may not, but the word of God will be great. So there we go. Second uh, Samuel 17, let's move on. Joanna. Sorry, she beat you, Jonathan, just by a split second. David is humbled by God's grace. And again, we think of David and, and just the kind of man he was. And I think this is the appropriate response when he hears this. Um, so Nathan brings God's message to David, and David is this humble response. And um, I picked this up as I was reading through some commentaries and stuff, but in the next... 11 verses, David uses the phrase, your servant to God, 10 times. And he calls himself, I'm your servant, God, your servant, your servant, your servant. I think that shows where his heart is at. That's how he addresses himself. So he talks about his unworthiness. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? I'm not anybody special. I'm not anybody out of the ordinary, and you've done this, God. He acknowledges that. You know, when God says, I brought you from a shepherd to rule over Israel, David's like, yes, you have. That's the truth. I'm not, I'm not anything out of the ordinary. I, I wasn't saw, I wasn't head and shoulders above everybody. I was just a poor shepherd boy, and you did this, God. Um, and he, he acknowledges God's ability to accomplish um, what he promised, and verse 19 says, this was, yet this is a small thing in your sight, O God. Like, like this, this is, this is you, you've done this great thing, yet this is a small thing in your sight. This is so easy for you to accomplish. You've done it. This is nothing for you. Um, and then he acknowledges God's gracious, prob- uh, God's gracious promise, sorry, I can't read, um, that... Uh, you have also spoken of your service house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? You've graciously promised this. And I like this. Uh, what more can David say to you? It's almost like, I, I don't even know what to say, God. You ever been speechless like that? Somebody does something and you just don't know how to respond to it? Um, I, I've had several situations like that where, where people have someone such grace and mercy or whatever to me, and I just like, anything I say is just going to sound trite and, and patronizing. I, I just can't say anything. It's just amazing. Um, you know, and, and you just don't know what to say. And David's in that place like, God, I can't even express how, how great this is because it's just not going to sound right. And I think he's just, just in awe of who God is and what he's done. And just even just, just hearing this, he knows he's so unworthy of this promise from God that God would bless him in such a way. And he just does not know how to answer of course, he keeps on talking, so maybe he's not totally speechless, but um, he, he doesn't know how to answer the right way here. Um, he talks about God's intimate knowledge of who he is, for you know your servant. Um, and then he talks about uh, God's exaltation through his plan. Uh, for your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things. It's for your sake that you're doing them. It's not for David's sake. David knows it's not about him. It's not about lifting David up. It's not about making David a great guy. It's, it's for God's glory that he knows that God is doing this. And he acknowledges that. You know, God, I, I, this, is, this is wonderful what you're doing, but I know it's for you. And I'm, I'm letting you know that. I know it's not about me. It's not about you know, giving David a big head. It's about, about God getting the glory for all that's going on. And so David has that right focus of, of what, what, what the deal is here. It's about God. Um, and then uh, God's grace in revealing his plan to David. Uh, you know, you've done all this, and you, you let me know what your plan is. You know, did God have to tell David what was going on? No, God could have made David a great house, and David would have never had to know about it. 
you know, it doesn't, it wouldn't have changed what God was doing. And David doesn't have any control over it anyway. But God was gracious in letting David know, and David acknowledges that, that you, you let me in on your plan, you let me know the truth of what's going on, and David is so thankful for that and seeing God's grace and that you've given me a glimpse into what your future plans are, that you've let me know that this is what you're doing, this is what your plan is. And I, I think you see his thankfulness and his, his humble response to God's grace in that. And so David's just humbled by, by what God's doing, what God has revealed to him. Okay, let's read on verses 22 through 24. Jonathan, you still want to read? Okay, go ahead. So David praises God's character and his actions. He praises, right? Is that the word? Yep. Okay. So I walk five feet and forget what I'm writing. Um, so he praises God for his greatness. Therefore, you are great, O God. Uh, and I think that's probably an understatement in the English. I, I think David is really saying, you know, there's, God is just greater, mightier, more powerful, more awesome than anything else. He's more awesome than Nathan's awesomeness. <laughs> so, sorry, I have to pick on you, Nathan. You brought it up. Uh, but he, God is great, and he, he's just acknowledging that. And then he acknowledges God's uniqueness. There's none like you, nor is there any God beside you. And he, he understands at least a little bit about who God is, and he's going to worship and praise God for that. Um, and then he, he, he goes to his actions and, and, and recites God's redemptive work that he's done in Israel. And again, redemption is a little different in the Old Testament. This isn't, you know, they trusted Christ as their Savior type redemption. This is God redeeming them from the slavery in Israel and has redeemed them from their enemies type of idea. Um, and he talks about that, who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom you, God went to redeem for himself. And the idea that he rescued them and made them his own nation and brought them to this place in Israel. And why? To make for himself a name and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for the Lord. It's for his glory he did it. You know, why, why did God choose Israel? Well, it wasn't because they were faithful people. They were just, they totally were unfaithful. It wasn't because of their belief. You know, every, every time they, they didn't have enough food or every time they got sick of the food they had, they uh, turned against God and wanted to go back to Israel to, to go back into slavery. You know, it wasn't because that they were worshiping right because every other day they turned around and were doing the wicked things before God. So God did it not because Israel was so good. They, God redeemed Israel because it was for his glory. He was showing the other nations all around what he was doing and how powerful he was uh, to make himself a name and to show his great and awesome deeds. Um, before the people you redeemed for yourself, Egypt, the nation, or gods, as for his proclamation, he was announcing to these other nations, Egypt, and the other nations, and to show the gods that they were worshiping, that their gods were nothing compared to the Lord God. And then I added, I already said for God's possession, but he adds on, for God's eternal possession. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever. I think uh, some people tend to forget that in the church age. They seem to think that God has thrown off Israel, but God hasn't. They're still his people, and he still plan, he has a plan for them, and he's put them aside for now, but there's, there's a future plan for Israel that God's going to fulfill, um, and they're still his people. Uh, your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And so God has purchased them and redeemed them, and, and David's reciting and praising God for his character and his actions, what he's done in Israel. And he, he's just giving out this worship now. He's humbled by God's grace, and he's just worshiping God and just saying, God, I know who you are, I know you, what you've done, and I'm going to give you praise and worship for that. Uh, and just, just neat how David responds. And then very interesting, verses 25 through 29. Let's read that. One more reader. Lynn, go ahead. Now there, O Lord God, the word which was, you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, establish it forever, and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, 
Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord, God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servants, that it may continue forever for you. For you, O Lord, God, have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of your servants be blessed forever. And so the last one here is David prays for God's plan to be accomplished. If I could summarize this whole section, it's, it's kind of David's praying, God, your will be done. Uh, that, that's really what he's kind of saying in this whole section here. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, God's promised, I'm going to build you a house, I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. And David's kind of reciting it and saying, God, let this happen. And, and if you kind of read it on the surface, it almost sounds like David's like saying, oh, God, don't, don't uh, go back on your promise. You know, it almost sounds like David's concerned that God's going to change his mind. I don't think that's the way he's praying. I think he's just acknowledging God's promise in a way where he's saying, God, let it, let it happen. I, I believe in your promise, and I'm looking forward to you fulfilling it. It's kind of this expectant hope type idea, where, where his, even though he's saying the phraseology, it makes it look like it's like saying, oh, God, don't go back. It's really him saying, I'm looking forward to you fulfilling your promise. And that's, that's I think, the attitude he's praying with here. But he, he, the section is he's praying for God's promise to be fulfilled. And David prays that God's name or maybe his reputation would be magnified through his promise. You know, David's not praying for his promise because David's like, I want my kingdom to be great and I want my name to be known and everybody to remember David and look how cool David was. David says, um, O thou Lord God, the words which you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, establish forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever. That's, that's his utmost thought is that Fulfill your promise so that people will worship you and people will acknowledge you and people will lift up you and magnify you, God. You know, his attitude is not, don't, don't magnify David in this. You've given me a promise, but I want you to be the focus of that. You know, it's not a, again, it's not about David here. David's not seeking glory for himself. He wants the glory to be given to God. Um, that God would be recognized as the God of Israel and he says, the Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. Well, why does he want God to be recognized as the God over Israel? Because God's fulfilling this promise in Israel. He's establishing the throne of Israel forever, the throne of David's descendant forever as king over Israel. And so if he's doing that, then he wants God to be known as the God of Israel because if that king is reigning over Israel forever, well, why is he doing that? Because there's a God over Israel, and that God has done it. And so that magnifies the God of Israel if there's a king over Israel. So that's why he says uh, that he wants God to be known as the God over Israel. And so as David's house is established, that magnifies God's name. And so David's only interested in this promise being fulfilled if God is magnified in it. Um, And David prays this, and it's interesting. Um, Verse 27, he says, For you, O Lord of hosts, God, have revealed this to your servant. And he says, therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. I'm praying this prayer to you now because you revealed it to me. Obviously, because he wouldn't know to pray it if he didn't get it revealed. But David says, I'm praying this because you revealed this truth to me. And so I'm going to pray it to you because I want it to happen. You revealed it to it. And, and then David continues to praise God. You are God. I'm going to continue to praise you because you are the only God. Your words are true. I like that in the, the service this morning that the God who is unable, who cannot lie. That's, that's what Paul tells us. So we have eternal life because we know that God cannot lie. He's going to keep his promises. David realized that too. God, you are true. You can't lie. You told me you're going to do this. You can't lie. There's no lie in you. This is going to happen. And you promised this goodness to me. You, you're not lying about this. I know that it's true. I have faith in you. And so David prays that God would continue to fulfill his promise. He says, let it please you to bless the house of David that would continue to continue forever because God has promised to do it. And David asked one last time, may, may my house be blessed with God's blessing forever. May you just continue to bless my house, Lord. And again, it's for God's glory, not for David's glory. 
So just a great attitude David has here. Um, and I'm going to talk about a little bit in the takeaway here in a second. So two takeaways. Uh, David and Nathan made plans to build a temple for God without consulting with God to find out if that's what God wanted to do. I think Nathan corrected me here. David maybe was trying to consult God. I think maybe it was Nathan's fault that he didn't go to God. So you, you may want to address that. I didn't even think of that, but I think you brought that up pretty well. Although their idea sounded and felt like the correct idea, it was not what God wanted them to do. Because, and I think this is true. It, that, it, it sounds like a good idea, right? I mean, you look at it from a human standpoint, and obviously, this is a great idea. Let's build a temple for the ark. Let's have a permanent place to worship. This is good. Everybody can come to worship God. It's, it's going to be there. It's going to be this beautiful place. There's nothing wrong with this idea from a human standpoint. But that's not what God wanted. And I added here, if we make decisions by what we think sounds good or feels good or makes logical sense, but we are not looking to God's word, we are not seeking the correct input for our decision-making, and we may end up making the wrong decisions. Now, I'm not saying we don't get that kind of input, but we need to start at God's word. First of all, we cannot depend simply on our logic or intellect alone. We can't depend on our human reasoning alone. And we certainly should not depend on how we feel. Our feelings are going to lead us astray more often than not, right? Our feelings are sin-cursed. Oh, I feel like this is the right decision. Well, that's, that's a bad place to start if that's your decision-making process. God alone gives true wisdom. And I don't know why there's a slash at the end of that. There should be a period. But, um, and I'm not saying you don't go to, to logic or reason or, or consult other people, but we start with God's word first, Right? We need to get God's input first. And then we talk to godly individuals, and then we, we ask for advice on stuff. But you start with God's word. And Nathan made the mistake. He said, this sounds good. This sounds like the right thing. Go for it. Oh, wait, God's telling me otherwise. I, whoops, probably should have checked there first. Okay. And, and I'm not saying, you know, Nathan's a good guy. Nathan later on has to confront the king on his sin. And Nathan, you know, they're going to the king. The king can behead you. The king can throw you in prison. The king can do all kinds of bad things to you. And Nathan just goes boldly in, and he's the one, you're the man. You're the one who sinned before God. You're the one that needs to repent. He, I mean, Nathan, Nathan does a good job later, so I'm not picking on Nathan. Uh, he, he does good. But this one time, I mean, and, and it looked like to, you know, to anybody, this is a great idea. So I, I don't blame Nathan here, but it's a lesson to us. Start with God's word. So, um, secondly, David's David's response to God's promise to make him a house is heartfelt praise to to God. David's praise begins with a humble acknowledgement of his unworthiness before God. He praises God for who he is, his character, and what he has done and will do, his actions. David expresses that God is the God of truth and that all he says will come to pass. Our response to God's promises to us and God's work in our lives ought to be like David's that we extend our heartfelt, humble praise to God. And if you're not looking in your life and seeing, um, as you read God's word and you see his promises, and as you're looking in your life and see how God's working in your life, and you're not responding in praise to God, you're missing out. We ought to see God's working, God's promises. All these things in our life ought to point us back to God, and our lives ought to be a worship and praise to God. I think David gets that, and... um, you know, this isn't the only time David praises God. I mean, we've seen this over and over throughout First and Second Samuel. And if you don't believe that David's praising God, you read through the Psalms, and there's a lot of Psalms that say a Psalm of David, and you see David worshiping and praising God. I mean, his life was characterized by praise of God. And he's a good example in this way. There's been times, the multiple wife thing, that he's been a bad example to us. But this is where David is, is an exemplary example of how we respond to what God has promised us and what God is doing in our lives. So I, I would take this as just look at what David's doing here and how he responds. This is how we ought to be responding as God works in our life. And I put this on here next week. It's in two weeks. I didn't think about this until this morning when I saw the date. Um, next week we're having the business meeting. Is it next week? 23, yeah. yeah so it, it, I, Adding by seven, I'm like 16. Some, 23 seems so far from 16, but seven days away, so that, that does work. Um, next week, we're going to do a more, or two weeks from now, a more in depth look at the Davidic covenant. We're going to spend some time on it 
and talk about it. Um, I think just another week on it, but if it's a lot, we'll do two weeks. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Um, but I think it's an important concept for us to understand, um, to kind of know how it, how it works out in, in, in Jesus Christ, how it will work out in the future. Uh, I, th- I think it, it's worth our time to spend on. Um, I've been working a little bit with Randy on some uh, stuff on it, so I think it's, there's some good stuff we can look at. And we'll, we'll talk about that in two weeks. So don't forget this. Come excited. I think it'll be a good lesson. So any thoughts, questions, concerns, comments? Anything else? Lynn. And, and like, I don't blame him because, like I said, it, if we come with an idea... If we came with an idea like that, we'd, we'd probably, or somebody came to us with an idea like that, we'd probably respond the same way, like, yeah, that's a great idea, because that's, that's our human tendency. You know, it, sound, it sounds spiritual. It sounds good. It sounds like it's worshipful to God. It sounds like something that God would want. But the problem is he, didn't, he, he, had, and he had direct access to the source. He could have gone and prayed to God and waited for a response before answering. We have the word of God that oftentimes we ignore because we just go, oh, that sounds good or that feels good or that right. seems like the right thing. Well, maybe we should do a little bit of reading or, um, you know, failing that, we'll go talk to our pastor or go talk to some godly men about a decision we're not sure about instead of going, oh, that feels like the right thing. Let's just do that and we get ourselves in trouble. And I'm not saying that everything works out that way. If you're telling me, should I go get Chick-fil-A for lunch or should I go get... Culver's, I tell you, go get Culver's because you can't go to Chick-fil-A today. It's closed. <laughs> but any other day, I tell you, it probably doesn't matter. But, you know, there's some decisions like that. But there's other decisions where there might be something that, you know, something might feel good, but maybe wisdom says, this isn't a good decision because it's going to put you in a bad place where it's going to lead you away from the things of God. And so you haven't considered that. You need to think about that. You know, so it, it, we, we can't operate on our feelings. We can't operate necessarily on, at first glance, what looks like the right thing because it may not be the right thing. So um, anyway, that's a nice soapbox there. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions? Comments, concerns? Good jokes. No, no good jokes, Nathan. Sorry, I shouldn't have opened that up. Okay. <coughs> Lynn, will you close us in prayer?